0: To the Usable Past. I'm Marie Nahikian and I'm joined today by PJ Ryan. Hello. Hi. Hey. So we have a long story today. Okay. With all deliberate speed. I'm ready. Three white sisters, a part Seminole Indian mom, Native American, an Armenian Scottish dad, and three very different worlds of racism, class, and civil rights in the South. North Carolina. The years are 1957 to 61, 64 to 69, and 1972 to 1974. I'm the middle sister. One sister, six years older, one, 11 years younger. There was just enough years separating us as we each grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, that we were in different worlds but with the same parents, church, home, schools, and expectations. Our parents named us with similarity, Marta, Marie, Marcia. There were really five of us. We also have two brothers. The oldest and the fourth sibling were our brothers. I'm also in the middle of three different times of racism, segregation, integration, and civil rights in the South. The 1957, 64, and 1972 was the year each of us went to college at the University of North Carolina And change in our schools changed our lives. So sister number one, Marta. Um, During my growing up years, where she was six, almost seven years older than I was, it seemed to me that there was a very long bridge between my world and my older sister's world. When I was six or seven, Marta was a teenager, so on rare occasions I was allowed to go with her. A movie at the Isis Theater, 25 cents for Gene Autry. No one's going to know who that was. Five cents for Necco Candy. Uh, Sneaking across the French Broad River on the working ferry to scare cows on the private Vanderbilt estate, where we always got caught and hauled in a truck to the miles-from-home front gate, where our parents were called to come and get us, and we were in trouble. We spent hours at St. George's Episcopal Church, started and built by our parents, And Marta always had a job, a high-demand babysitter, an after-school job in the children's room at the Pack Memorial Library. Marta also had a prestigious federal summer job in the U.S. National Weather Records Center in the Arcade Building. Marta remembers that she never knew any African Americans in Asheville, North Carolina for the first 18 years of her life. Segregation was entrenched. African Americans weren't allowed to even use the public library where she worked. In 1952, my first elementary school, Eugene Rankin, was segregated, and many of the students who lived in the recently constructed first-in-the-neighborhood public housing called the Pisgah View Apartments were all white. Marta and I attended Hall Fletcher Junior, and Lee Edwards High School, both still segregated when I graduated in 64. So in 1957, Marta graduated from Lee Edwards High School, and in September, she began her freshman year at the Women's College of the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Marta was the second woman in our family to attend WC. Um, WC was about as close to a legacy as, as our family had, since not many of us had gone to college. Marta's leaving for college was a big deal. My dad didn't finish college and mom was always embarrassed that she never finished high school. I was 11 and remember that summer as an exciting one because it was full of mom designing and sewing clothes. Marta, who worked at two or three jobs, one during the day and one in the evening, and I remember her talking with her girlfriends about how exciting it was to go off to college. So in August... We all, my dad, my mom, my younger brother, drove to Greensboro, North Carolina in a station wagon packed to the gills. Marta was pretty embarrassed with her mom because mom, at the advanced age of 39, was very pregnant with Marcia, sister number three, my youngest sister. And of course, at that day and age in 57, no one was having babies at 39. <laughs> It seemed to me that Marta never came home to live again, uh, though she came home for holidays and one or two summers to work. Marta's segregated world began changing in February 1960. During her junior year, four black a and college students in Greensboro transformed and nearly upended Marta's life. On February 2nd, uh, the Greensboro Record newspaper reported the following story— A group of 20 Negro students from A&T College occupied lunch counter seats without being served at the downtown F.W. Woolworth Company store late this morning, starting what they declared would be a growing movement. Two days later, the following headline appeared in the same newspaper. At one time, the headline was, Movement by Negroes Growing." At one time, Negro students filled 63 of the 68 cent seats at the lunch counter. The other seats were occupied by waitresses. No service was given. But among the developments in the article, it was noted that moral support of the demonstration by several Greensboro College students who said they believed other students from white colleges might back the idea. And the record quoted a New York City spokesman for Woolworths is saying, Well, we just always follow local custom. So the next morning, the headlines included that three Greensboro or women's college students and Negro high school, high school students joined Negroes from AT College in a mass sit down protest because of the failure to secure service at the F.W. Woolworth lunch counter on Thursday. Marta was one of those women's college students joining the protest. Marta remembers thinking it was the right thing to do, but a day later, she was suddenly received a a note to meet with the women's college dean. As Marta recalled, she said, I'd never had a request to meet from the dean. I had never, ever met her in my three years of college. This is what Marta remembers happening next. She says, the dean asked me how I was doing and mentioned that I would be a senior next year, right? And she was friendly and mentioned that I had both a scholarship and a work-study grant. She asked me, could you continue your senior year if you did not have that scholarship or work-study grant? Marta says, I assured her that I needed both to finish my senior year. Very politely, the dean then said, well. You should know, we do not like seeing our WC students marching on the street. Marta's private meeting with the dean preceded a full campus assembly for an address by the Chancellor Gordon Blackwell on February 9th. There's a transcript of Blackwell's speech where he states emphatically that students of the Women's College should not participate in these protests. And ironically, reports of the events following um, do mention that he convened a meeting of all of the Greensboro-based colleges, Greensboro College, Guilford College, which was a Quaker school, Bennett College, which was a private um, women's school for African-American women, um, and A&T. And the chancellor solicited then two of the white women's college students who had been participating in the sit-ins to meet with the a and African-American leaders to request a halt in the demonstrations. That same year, Marta went to summer school, never attending, obviously, another protest, and she was a resident advisor when, for the first time, black women's students lived in a dormitory on mm-hmm. her campus. Mm-hmm. Marta remembers that the only complaint from one of the other white students was that the hallway smelled differently. (laughs) Right. Marta still lives in Greensboro and recalls that one of those four trailblazing women that lived in the dorm that summer where she was a resident advisor was Claudette Burrow williams who was appointed to the Greensboro City Council in 1984 and served until 2005. Um, she's passed away, but her obituary calls her a beloved leader and makes the connection to the women's college students who supported the Woolworth sit-ins. Burroughs White is lesser known as an early civil rights leader, her obituary says. And on February 2nd, one day after four black students from A&T refused to leave the Woolworth lunch counter, Burroughs White brought a group from the women's college now University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and join them. So as I said, Marta never joined another picket line or a demonstration, but she's never wavered in her support for racial justice. She worked in the public schools for 52 years, first as a business teacher and then as a guidance counselor. And one more event was highly instructive. Um, In 1966, Marta was assigned to teach at a new high school. And when she arrived at Brown Summit, she was the only white teacher, in fact, the only white face at the high school. And so the principal who was interviewing her and talking with her laughed and said, well, at least you'll never slip an absence on me. Hmm. Marta said she was confused until he explained, well, I'll always notice when you're not around. Marta... Um, took um, a, a group of her students to a demonstration and exhibit in downtown Greensboro of new uh, future office equipment like fax machines. And she got into a long discussion with a couple of the exhibit kind of salespeople who were there, and they talked a lot about it. And then she gathered up her students, and as she was leaving, she heard one of the salesmen say to the other one, well, I don't know. She looks as white as me. <laughs> the assumption being, of course, that because she was there with a group of black students that she must be black. The other the other thing that happened at Brown Summit was that when Marta had arrived, um there was a whole row of electric typewriters, electric selectric typewriters, which were really fancy at that particular point in time. Uh-huh. But they had never been used. Really? There were no electrical plugs. (laughs) Okay. There had been been a work order submitted for the electrical plugs months and months and months ago, which, needless to say, never got taken care of until Marta arrived at Brown Summit. So Marta stays in Greensboro, still lives in Greensboro. Um, She married a retired Air Force officer, has a daughter and a granddaughter who are the loves of her life. And other than her continuing commitment um, to a better world, her other love is travel, and she's seen a good part of the world oh, over the great. last twenty years. So then there comes to be sister number two, which is me, Marie. Oh. only a few African-Americans growing up in Asheville. Um, The relationships were mostly work-related or church-related. Mom was a cook in a nursing home, and her, quote, help was African-American. Our church, St. George's, had isolated youth group events with St. Matthias, the African-American Episcopal Church, but none of the youth from St. Matthias ever came to church camp or the Girl Scout summer camp. The Girl Scout camps were segregated. On Sundays, we always drove to the Negro neighborhood on Burton Street to pick up Amanda, who took care of the babies during services. She was always dressed in a starch white uniform. I was a summer lifeguard at the city's Malvern Hills pool, which allowed no Negroes. And I did not have Negro friends in these legally separated years. Legally separated, segregated years. One event from my childhood stands out. Um, Laura was an African-American woman who uh, helped mom with catering jobs. Laura usually took a bath in our house because she didn't have indoor plumbing. One afternoon, I wandered into the bathroom while she was in there. And because I needed a bath that day, Laura scooped me up, put me in the tub with her for a quick wash, when I told the neighborhood fr- my neighborhood friends that I'd taken a bath with Laura, their parents went tattling to my mom. Mom quickly put an end to it all when she responded, so, she needed a bath. Okay. The attitude of my mom is connected to her own family history. Mm-hmm. Um, mom's brother, Edward, who lived in Florida, um, was very dark skinned, had dark hair. They were both part Seminole, but obviously Uncle Ed reflected that. Their mother, Edith, who was my grandmother, um, who I never knew, was Seminole, and both their parents, um, one was from North Carolina and then my Seminole grandmother, um, passed away. And my Uncle Ed and Mom were sent to a Southern Baptist church orphanage in Arcadia, Florida. The 1930 census, in fact, lists Irma Curtis, my mom, as an inmate at the Florida Baptist Orphanage, age 11. Uncle Ed, as I said, had brown skin and dark black hair and uh, obviously looked different than my mom. My mother was secretly told that as soon as she turned 16, the orphanage would arrange for her to marry a new Baptist seminary graduate, before he was sent out to a church. So the summer before her 16th birthday, mom convinced her mom's sister, Aunt Nanny, who had put them in the orphanage, to buy bus tickets for her and Uncle Ed to go to Asheville, North Carolina, where her father had lived, for a summer visit. While there, my mom got a job, age six, not, not yet 16, lived with her father's sister, and at summer's end did not return to the Florida Orphanage. Hmm. Mom told me that she sent Uncle Ed, who was 12 years old then, back to the orphanage because she couldn't make enough money to take care of him and because of the racial discrimination he encountered with his dark skin color. This had a lifelong impact on my mother's attitude about race. She always was very careful to treat everyone she met with respect and equity. Mom had all kinds of jobs. She cooked, she sewed, she was always taking care of somebody who needed help. And at one point had a job in the Sears Shoe Department. She was the only salesperson who would serve African-American families. The Sears Shoe Department had a shoe-fitting fluoroscope. You know what a (laughs) fluoroscope is? Mm -hmm. Described in, in Wikipedia describes it as a metal construction covered in finished wood with an opening where the customer would place his or her feet in the opening provided and look through a viewing porthole at the top of the fluoroscope down at an X-ray view of the feet inside the shoes. Two other portholes on either side uh, enabled the parent and a salesperson uh, to observe the child's toes being wiggled to show how much room for the toes there were inside the shoes. Not exactly great for your feet. (laughs) The bones of the feet were clearly visible, as was the outline of the shoe, including the stitching around the edges. Mom allowed all of her customers to use the fluoroscope, resulting in a severe reprimand from her manager about allowing her black customers Mm -hmm. to use the fluoroscope. Mm -hmm. I remember that the fluoroscope was against the wall, very close to where there were colored and white water fountains. Mom didn't work for Sears for very long. Mm-hmm. So like my older sister, I graduated from Lee Edwards and followed in her footsteps to the recently renamed Women's College that became the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. The first male students were admitted that year that I started as a freshman, um, but it re- really did remain mostly the Women's College Um just as it had been founded in 1891 is the first and only public university in North Carolina with the purpose of educating women. In 1949, it was the largest all-female institution in the U.S. This was a legacy tradition for my family. In 1964, when I started as a freshman, 1% of the UNCG students were black. Between 64 and 68, UNCG was in a huge transition. It was the 60s. I was an activist from the moment I arrived. Mm. There was a time when wearing a dress on Sunday, no pants allowed, was an absolute requirement. While I was there, that faded away to no dress code, and there were black students living in the dorms with whites. We boycotted the cafeteria at one point in support of the workers' union organizing, uh, where previously there had been just the traditional Sunday dinner after church. We heard Marvin Gaye and the Beatles in the dorm hallways, along with white students who had never been in a room with Negro students. We opposed the Vietnam War. We supported the Student Nonviolent violent Coordinating Committee, the Black Panthers, and Students for a Democratic Society. Tobacco was everywhere, with free samples provided in our dorms by the cigarette girl. It was North Carolina, after all. (laughs) In 1967, my worldview changed as well. And I've talked about this in an earlier podcast called The Atlanta Invitation, but it's an important kind of contrast of what happened. I was a college newspaper editor, and um, our paper got this uh, invitation to and uh, offering a plane ticket to a higher education conference for student editors in Atlanta, Georgia. I said yes when everyone else said no, and I had never been to Atlanta. So, November 3rd, 60, 1967, that's 10 years after my older sister had started college. I flew to Atlanta, Georgia, and I followed the instructions, took a taxi to the Pascal's Motor Hotel, to take a taxi to Pascal's Motor Hotel where the conference was. Three white cab cab drivers refused, and I was told to go with a black driver. When I said Pascal's Motor Hotel, the driver stared at me for a moment and said, well, if that's really where you want to go. I had no idea that Pascal's was brand new, and also the only black-owned hotel in Atlanta. When I got there, there was a crowd of very large black men in the Pascal's lobby who created a kind of path for me to get to the front desk. It was the Grambling University football team from Louisiana. So I got a reservation check, got a key in my hand check, opened the door to my room to find it already occupied by two African-American women who were as surprised as I was. One said to the other, she's supposed to stay in our room. And the other said to me, You're not staying in our room. I mumbled something about, well, this was the key they gave me, and I guess they made a mistake, and then went downstairs and was put in a single room. The next morning, November fourth, I was ready for a ten o'clock in the morning workshop that I don't know, was called something like the future. Um I I knew I had to write something about this for my newspaper, so I went into the conference room that was absolutely packed with probably 200 folks sitting auditorium-style. There was a woman on the platform stage that was speaking, and the whole room was kind of lined with African-American men standing against the walls and around the edge of the stage. As I scanned around for an empty spot to sit, the woman stopped speaking mid-sentence, and said in a very loud voice, get the white honky bitch out of here. (laughs) Silence filled the room (laughs) as a sea of black faces turned to stare, and that's when I looked around and realizing that I was the white honky bitch. Immediately, the security men who were standing around the room surrounded me, and we walked out of there. I remember being surprised and thinking they didn't even know who I was. I was unsure about what to do, where to go, what to write about. I didn't know who the speaker was on stage at that point, remembering only her distinctive red-haired afro. Someone said to me in the hotel lobby, don't worry about it, it's Kathleen Cleaver. Kathleen Cleaver was the field secretary for the New York Office of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And about the same time in 67, Cleaver became the communications secretary of the Black Panther Party, the first woman um, of the Panther Party Central Committee. Uh, Kathleen Cleaver is now a professor at the Emory University School of Law. She also was married at one point to Eldridge Cleaver, um, who, among other things, wrote Soul on Ice. Over coffee in the hotel restaurant, I heard a waitress say, Dr. King's coming home today. Now, Dr. Martin Luther King was somebody that I knew, so I asked and wrote, got directions to the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and somewhere around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, found myself in the basement of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, where a large crowd of church members were preparing a coming home reception for their pastor, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King arrived after five days in jail in Birmingham, where he was ordered to serve after the Supreme Court appeal of the nineteen sixty-three contempt convictions for civil rights activity in Birmingham. In 63, Dr. King had spent five days in jail and wrote the now famous letter from the Birmingham Jail. Only recently did I learn that this was that this time in jail in 1967 to finish out this sentence at the um, behest of the Supreme Court was the last time Dr. King ever went to jail. In November, after serving this final jail term in Birmingham, King announced the Poor People's Campaign. 67 was a pretty tumultuous year internally for the civil rights movement. Stokely Carmichael had stepped down as the head of SNCC in May. uh, H. Rep. Brown was selected to take over the leadership position And it was the summer after Stokely Carmichael's call for black power, which had created inflammatory media coverage and divisions between the Southern Conference Leadership Committee, King's Civil Rights Organization, and SNCC, which had led the Freedom Summer to register voters in Mississippi and Alabama. Dr. King had denounced the U.S. involvement in Vietnam in April 1967, and Thurgood Marshall was nominated by President Lyndon Johnson to the Supreme Court that same September. It was an amazing time. I was amazed and excited when I saw Dr. King arrive and walk to the front of the hall, stopping for hugs and many clasped hands, His wife, Coretta Scott King, was with him, and Dr. King spoke a few brief words, noting, I thank God for being back safely at home. I tried to get close to ask for an interview, but not soon enough, and he was gone, saying, I hope you all will excuse me. I have a cold, and I am tired. Mrs. King remained in the room as the church members moved about. Refreshments were served. I don't remember seeing any of the King children, but it's likely I wouldn't have recognized them. I introduced myself to Coretta Scott King as a student journalist and asked if I could interview her. Her response was quick and courteous. Yes, of course, she said. Let's talk over there, gesturing toward a small card table. The interview continued as the reception ended and the women of the Ebenezer Baptist Church cleaned up around us. I didn't share how my day had started at Paschal's, In contrast to my experience at the conference that morning, my time with Coretta Scott King was reflective with a quiet resignation but full of hope but also quiet anger. The interview with Coretta Scott King was one of the only a few that she ever gave to the media before Dr. King's assassination and my interview was published in the Carolinian student newspaper on November 10, 1967. For me... This was a crucial moment of understanding the tension of how civil rights movement, how the civil rights movement would move forward. It was a stark contrast between SNCC's demand for action and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's commitment to nonviolent protests. It was a life-changing experience for me. I moved to Washington, DC. after graduating from UNC, Greensboro, and I've been an organizer and involved with social and economic justice and housing, neighborhood government, home rule for the District of Columbia, I don't know, homelessness, community food, mm. redlining, displacement. I mean, that's been my life. Um, I helped build an environmental movement by organizing the first conference about Earth Day in 1970 mm. that led up to Earth Day. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a later podcast because that was a pretty wild scene. i love to hear it. Yeah, that was a wild scene. Uh, I've been married for 13, for 33 years, 13 years. <laughs> That's 33 years to um, an African-American writer, Gene Seymour. Uh, we have a son who voted for Barack Obama a year before I joined the Obama administration and working at the U.S. Department of HUD. So that's the contrast story of Sister Number Two. But with all deliberate speed, we're going to move to the youngest of us all, Sister Number Three, Marcia, whose experience was very, very different. She was born in 1957. That was the year my older sister went to college. We were pretty spread out. I remember the day that Dad came to my sixth grade classroom to tell me. Uh, that I had a new baby sister. There was a lot of happiness about Marcia's arrival and most significantly that my mother had survived because seven years earlier, Mom had had a heart attack shortly after the birth of my brother. Marcia was a child of the civil rights movement, born into the chaos of Asheville, North Carolina's school integration, which began after the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed, although black parents began demanding to attend white schools as far back as 1960. Marcia's early school years, 63 to 68, were in a segregated Acock Elementary School. In 69, 1969, Marcia was in the seventh grade in the first year of an integrated Hall Fletcher Junior High. Marta and I, the older sisters, had walked to Hall Fletcher Junior High in West Asheville, African-American students had attended the Burton Street School, which was closed as a part of the integration plan. In fact, integration happened in Asheville, North Carolina by closing almost every black school that existed. The physical (coughs) facilities and the resources in the classrooms were dismal. The book's 50 years old. Stevens-Lee, the black high school, and Lee Edwards, the white high school, had the same school colors, so that the band at Stevens lee could wear the handed-down uniforms. Desegregation was described by African-American residents in a report of a, in a 2014 public meeting about, was a meeting about the learning gap that still exists between African-American and white students in Asheville. And one of the residents noted that as a young girl, I only interacted with other blacks. I remember seeing two white girls playing and thinking they were baby dolls come to life. They also talked about, in this meeting, remembering with great pride that blacks had in their schools before desegregation. Livingston Elementary and Stevens Lee High School were known for their strong academics, with many teachers having master's degrees. Students excelled in extracurricular activities, and the Stevens Lee Band was famous. It was the band that was always put at the very back of the city's Christmas parade, because if they were in the front of the parade, everybody would just go home. So everyone waited until the end of the parade to see that band. When the schools were integrated, it was an intense transition. Students with little or no experience... Um, began interacting with people of different races and we were suddenly in classes and on teams together. The tensions that were caused by desegregation led to two major uprisings in Asheville High School. They combined Stevens Lee and Lee Edwards into Asheville High School, one in 1969 and a second one in 1972. After the first, the high school was closed for a week, and there was a citywide curfew for six months. That speaks volumes to the magnitude of the tensions that must have been there. Mm -hmm. After the 72, can you imagine, six months? I'm like, that's that's a long time. Yeah. So after the 1972 event, eight people were hospitalized, and a third significant uh, uh, disruption happened in 1975. Marcia's, the baby sister, as we say, um, was in the 10th grade at Asheville High School in 1972. There were times of violent confrontation culminating in a riot. Marcia remembers being locked with students in a classroom one afternoon as, as white students threw rocks through the windows. There was a moment of terror for all when a line of white male students faced a line of black male students, and anyone ha- leaving had to walk between the two lines. Marsha remembers when the North Carolina State Highway Patrol officers arrived to guard all the entrances. One afternoon at the end of the school day, three African-American female students jumped Marsha on the stairs. Beat her, broke her glasses, demanding money that she didn't have. Marcia does not remember how she got home, if anyone assisted or intervened, and if there was any action by the school after that incident. The only memory she has was that our mom was furious and went with dad to school to demand that somebody pay for her broken glasses. The surrounding details or facts of what happened or lost, Marta, Marcia does not remember. Today, Marcia does not even remember being a fearful or afraid, it just happened. Mm. I remember little about what happened to Marcia. I remember some discussion about that the reason Marcia was alone after school on the stairs was that she had been working with a fellow African-American male student in the library. Nobody else remembers this, so perhaps I just made it up. <laughs> Marcia's world was forever changed. She left Lee Edwards. Mom and Dad did not discuss any of these events with us or the outside world, they made a quiet intervention. Our parents had, were Episcopal church leaders in western North Carolina. Mom catered weddings and events. Dad had been a central person who worked with Bishop George Henry to start and build the first Episcopal church, St. George's, in the working class West Asheville. Marcia received financial assistance and finished high school at St. Mary's, an Episcopal girls' boarding school in Raleigh, North Carolina. Marsha's the smartest academic of us all, a Ph.D. and a professor at a large university. She's an editor and author of multiple books and is considered a top nutrition educator in the U.S. Marsha's been chosen as a professor of the year and has won many awards for her teaching methods and research. Marsha also has a history of commitment and support to social and racial justice in her profession and in her church. Racism and fear are equal commodities, feeding off each other. We live in a world where racism defines the future for as long as we fail to understand how it touches and harms each of us, some more than others. So many stark examples, sugar fueled the growth of slavery in our nation and today stands at the root of a very profitable food industry that is killing all of us. Threats of immigrants at our southern border, mass incarceration of African American men, the criminal justice system in the U.S. is our largest employer, the source of billions of public dollars spent for private property, private profit, Mm -hmm. and property. Mm -hmm. We can ease our fear and buy a gun, but we cannot buy food, health care, or a home. Like slavery, fear fuels hate and white supremacy, fear props up racism to maintain control, and to protect that the economic benefit continues, it's necessary to assure that fear continues. Fear had never existed for any of the three of us white Southern sisters until we were confronted with the impact of racism. In 1957, Marta feared the loss of her scholarship for supporting the Greensboro, North Carolina lunch counter sit-ins, In 1967, I feared being the only white girl in the hostile world of Claflin Cleaver in Atlanta. Marcia remembers being afraid, but mostly worried about having the money to replace her glasses. Fear was present in these events that forever changed the lives of three Southern white sisters, but we are still committed to social justice and equity that will assure a better world with all deliberate speed.